Good morning. How are you? Doing well? Good. Uh, before we uh, open the word, um, Diane asked me to remind, well, not remind, but inform for some of you. Uh, you know she works with Thrive, right? You know what Thrive does? They, they, they rescue unborn children and they minister to women and um, provide all kinds of health care and do wonderful things in the community. Um, they are hated by certain groups. For example, NARAL is one of them. Heard of NARAL? Um, they're kind of the political arm of Planned Parenthood. And so they're organizing a campaign against Thrive. They, well, they, they have been, it's not new. But uh, this week they're planning a, um, a protest in, in front of Thrive's uh, St. Louis Clinic, is that correct? The city clinic. And they partnered with the Church of Satan and some other um, wholesome groups <clears throat> um, to oppose the, the good work that Thrive is doing. Uh, of course, the, they're spreading much misinformation about Thrive, claiming that it's not a medical clinic, et cetera, et cetera. I won't get into all that. The point is, is that we want to ask the body to be in prayer for this. Um, uh, we'll probably send an email out just to remind you to be praying this week. We're not, it's not a call for action other than prayer at this point. We may, we may change our minds and decide that we want to invite Christians to do something else. But for now, it's a call to prayer. So why don't you stand with me, and we're going to pray for that, as well as God's blessing on the Word. Father, we thank you uh, that we can come to you with all of our um, needs and all of our cares we thank you, Lord, that uh, we know that you love uh, not only the born, but the unborn. We know that you love these women in crisis, and you desire for them to see your love expressed through your people. So we know, Lord, that uh, you are, have been working through Thrive, and you want to continue to do that work. We ask for your protection over the ministry. We ask for... Uh, uh, that you'd guard the hearts of all those that labor there, that they'd not be afraid, but they would be confident that they're, <clears throat> they're doing your work, confident in your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, just put a hedge of protection around um, the entire ministry, and from everyone from the board down to every volunteer. We also ask, Lord, for the hearts of those that are opposing the work. We pray for your conviction upon them, we pray, God, that you might open their eyes to understand uh, the lies that they are believing and spreading. And you might even um, use this to draw some of them to your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, that you, um, in ways that we cannot understand, you work good out of evil. And we pray that you would do that in this situation. Uh, we ask also today, Lord, that you bless the word to our souls that we would hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're going to go back to Zechariah 4, which we looked at last week, and we're going to read, read through the entire chapter, which is not very long. We read it last week, but let's look at it again. It says, uh, in Zechariah 4, are you all there? I'll give you time. 
I was at Life Group the other day, and Steve Sanders must take a speed reading course. Because every time he referred to a verse, before I could turn my Bible there, he was reading it. So then my wife says, well, you do that sometimes when you preach. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll slow down then. You can all get there. So what's faster? Let me ask you guys. What's faster, flipping your Bible pages or using your smartphone? Who says smartphone? Who says Bible pages? Yeah, it's the older guys that like the Bible pages. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Zechariah 4.1, if you're not there now, you're hopelessly lost. It says, verse 1, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. It's a man who was waking out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes of the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I'm thinking, well, of course he doesn't because he asked, but whatever. And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone, meaning of the temple, with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hands also will finish it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, the seven, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, um, as, I, as we looked at this text last week, and as I explained, this passage is about the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity back to the land of Israel. The, the temple had been virtually destroyed when um, they were taken captive. When they come back to the land, God tells them to rebuild the temple. The cornerstone was laid, but then the work stopped. And the work stopped for 20 years. So even though God had called them to rebuild the temple and commissioned them to do so, they weren't doing the work. They began the work and then they quit. As we, as we saw last week, um, the reason was is, is that they looked at, their, looked at the work that they were doing as, as insignificant. They believed the temple would never be restored to its former glory. So what was the point? Um, also, there was a problem of unbelief on the part of the people that they were able to fulfill what God was calling them to do. So God gives Zechariah a vision uh, to share with the people, and this vision was intended as both a reproof to their unbelief as well as an encouragement to them to get to the work, to do the work, do God's work, and that the work will be successful. So it's both a reproof, but also an exhortation and an encouragement. 
So I want to unpack the symbolism here uh, this morning and then uh, make some applications to ourselves. First, let's talk about the symbolism of the vision. The lampstand and the olive trees are referred to here. What are these? Well, the original lampstand in the temple, it was in the holy place of the temple. Uh, this was a very small place that only the high priest could go into. And uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness had a, a, it was called a tabernacle because it was movable. It wasn't a permanent temple, okay? The permanent temple was, was uh, modeled after that tabernacle. It had this lampstand in the holy place. And you can read about it in Exodus 25, if you're taking notes, 31 through 37. We're not going to read it now for the sake of time. But what the lampstand represented, in, in one sense, was the light of God, of God's presence amongst the people, that he was there with them. But it also represented the, the true office of Israel, which was to be a light to the nations as God's chosen people, to show forth God's marvelous light. Of course, as it applies to the church, it speaks of the fact that Jesus said in John, I am the light of the world, yet he looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. Well, how could they both be the light of the world? Well, because if you're in Christ, you partake of his office and his ministry. So if he's the light of the world and I am in him, then I become the light of the world. So we are called children of light in the Bible. We're told to walk as children of light, not as children of darkness, because we, being in Christ, who is the light of the world, we become the light of the world. Pretty awesome thought when you think about it. So when you go to work tomorrow, you are the light of your office. You are the light of your workplace. So the church is the light today course, only because we are in Jesus Christ. So back to our vision. In this vision, these olive trees provided oil for the lamp, the oil being a symbol of the Holy Spirit consistently throughout Scripture. Now, the significance of the vision isn't just the vision of the lampstand, but that, but that when you compare this lampstand to the lampstand in Exodus, there are significant differences between the lampstands. What are the differences? The differences are three. One, the lampstand, the original lampstand did not have a bowl. Okay, there was no bowl for the oil. So therefore, there were no, number two, there were no pipes feeding the bowl. And then thirdly, there were no trees feeding the pipes which fed the bowl. Okay? Well, how was the, how was the lamp kept going in the original? It was by the priest going in and providing oil for the lamps. So there's a significant difference between this lampstand and the original. What's the point? The point is this. What God is saying in this vision of the lampstand and the olive trees here, which was different from the original, it was intended to express to the people that God was going to give them a fuller and more immediate supply of divine oil, which is the Holy Spirit. And that through the Holy Spirit's agency, Israel would be able to fulfill their task of rebuilding the temple and ultimately of being the light of the world. 
That's the significance of the, the lampstand. But we have other symbolism here. We have, the, uh, we have a mountain mentioned here. Now in Scripture, uh, again, we won't take time to look, but if you do a little reading on mountain, what you find is that mountain is used either for an obstacle or for opposition, or both. Of course, opposition is an obstacle, right? Yes? You all with me? All right. So that's why Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed. Well, he's not saying literally, go out west and find a mountain and just chant at it. That's not what he's saying. If you say to, this, say to the obstacle or to the opposition, and a mountain was, was used to mainly refer to human authorities or opponents, could be spiritual opponents, but the idea of opposition to God's work is represented as a huge obstacle. So um, here in our text, after God says in verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, my spirit is going to make this happen. <clears throat> then he says in verse 7, who are you, O great mountain? In other words, in light of the Holy Spirit, what is, who are you, obstacle? So what the angel doing here is he's, He's telling Zechariah that the opposition to success of God's work or to Israel's work was going to be put down, was going to be leveled. That God was going to remove the obstacle by the power of his Holy Spirit. See, it was a taunt, if you will, to God's enemies, but it was a, an encouragement and a, and a prophecy, if you will, to God's people to do the work. I will remove the opposition. Do the work. Also, Zerubbabel is mentioned here. Now, he was a real person, but he's also a symbolic person, if you will. And in this text, he, is, he, is, uh, he typifies Christ as a ruler or a king, just as Joshua in chapter 3 of this text, uh, of this book, represents Jesus as the high priest. We won't, well, we won't read it, but in chapter 3, we see Joshua, the high priest, we know from Scripture that Jesus is our high priest. Amen? But Jesus is also the king and the ruler. Amen? So both Zerubbabel and Joshua are said in this passage to build the temple. So they're both said to build the temple. And why is that? It's because the two represent one person. In his two offices. That is to say, they both typify Jesus Christ, Christ as king and Christ as priest. So it's Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who builds God's spiritual temple, the church. Amen? And thus, these are the two olive trees feeding the lamps. Now we see this weird, another symbolism here is this weird reference to the, the seven eyes. Of course, the seven eyes speak of God's omniscience, God's wisdom and God's omniscience. That, that he sees everything. That he oversees everything, if you will. So in this context, uh, what, what the prophet is saying, or the Lord is saying through the prophet, is that, number one, my spirit will, will energize the work and give the power 
the rulers will build the, the work and my wisdom and omniscience will oversee the work. Pretty awesome encouragement, amen? Of course, as much as this text is primarily about Israel, it applies equally to the church. If it was true then, how much more true is it today? Amen? So what we see here is that the success of God's work depends upon the power of God's Holy Spirit. That is my first main point. By the way, that was all introduction. It depends primarily on this, the, the operation of God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is uh, something we see all throughout Scripture. In, in Genesis 1, the second verse, who's mentioned? The Holy Spirit. It says, And the Spirit of God hovered or brooded or sat over the waters, right? So the Spirit of God is there in creation. Genesis 2, 7, it says that when God created man, he, he formed him physically, but then he breathed his breath into his nostrils. We know that the, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Word of God, right? So he, he gives us natural revelation through creation and through man, and then he gives us supernatural revelation through the Word of God. Then the Holy Spirit um, also was the divine person through whom Christ came into the world through the incarnation. Someone mentioned Christmas earlier, right? Which we just celebrated. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who caused Mary to conceive the Son of God. So uh, we see the Holy Spirit operative in creation, in inspiration, in incarnation, and of course in regeneration, the new birth. Jesus said that a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Then he talks about the Holy Spirit blowing where he wills. He says, you have to be born twice in order to only die once. If you're only born once, you die twice. Because you see the second death, right? So we must be born of God's Holy Spirit. So in all of these divine acts, whether it's creation or inspiration, incarnation, regeneration, in all of these divine acts, God is working through the agency of his Holy Spirit. And the same is true today. God continues his work in the world through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? He does it in his church. He does it personally in the lives of believers. Let's just look at a few scriptures. Look at uh, Romans 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. Now, if you read the book of Romans, what you find is that in the, in the development of Paul's argument, he's trying to show that the law does not save in the sense that it does not justify and he deals with that in, in chapters uh, 1 through 5. But then he goes on to say the law does not save in the sense that it does not sanctify. In other words, the law by itself has no transformative power. The Bible doesn't change you apart from the Spirit of God. I'm going to say it again. 
The Bible doesn't change you apart from the Spirit of God. The very very Pharisees that called for Jesus to be crucified knew the Old Testament better than probably all of us. And Jesus says, "You, you, you look in the Word for eternal life. The Word, apart from the Spirit, is a dead letter. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So the Bible by itself, the word by itself, must be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul is saying the law doesn't justify and the law doesn't sanctify. Why? Is something wrong with the law? No. He says in chapter 7, right, we're going to get to 8 in a minute. He says, verse 12, the law is holy. Amen? The commandment holy. Amen? And just. Amen? And good. Amen? The word's good, all of it, beginning to end. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what was good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know the law is spiritual. But I'm not. I'm carnal, he says, under sin. So at the end of Romans 7, Paul cries out saying, The the law cannot sanctify. The law cannot save in in the practical sense of the word. The law by itself has no transformative power. So how how do we change? What do we need to change? Do Do we need the word to tell us what to be? Well, yes, because we have to know right from wrong. We have to know what pleases God, and we find that out in his word. But that is not enough. You can say to your five-year-old child, I want you to write a dissertation in Latin on the deity of Jesus Christ. And they won't be able to do it. They don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. God can give us a standard. He tells us what to do. But how do we, how do we actually do it? And this is the, the genius, if you will, of Christianity. A lot of people think of Christianity as, well, it's a bunch of rules and regulations, I don't know. The genius of Christianity is that God changes from the inside out. Yes, he has standards. But he, he knows that we cannot fulfill the standards apart from an inward heart change, a transformation inside. And so he not only commands us to live a certain way, he provides the power to do it. That's why it's grace. It's grace. So Paul comes at the end of his rope in verse 24 of chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is Paul coming to the end of his rope, realizing he can never fulfill what God requires. I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord, so then with the mind I serve the law of God. In other words, I recognize it's true and right and holy and good. But with the flesh, the law of sin. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, not weak in itself, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, if you're a Christian, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you're a true believer, you have the Holy Ghost, and if you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're not a true believer. You might be an intellectual believer, if you will, but you're not born of God's Spirit because you don't possess the Holy Ghost. So he says, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not His. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children than heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. <clears throat> Amen. And then he goes on and talks about the Spirit's ministry in our prayer life. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession or intercession for us, or some versions say intercession through us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So, uh, as I've pointed out many times, in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit's mentioned one time until you get to chapter 8, and then he's mentioned 19 times in this chapter. The Christian life is the life of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. Now, we can be religious, and there's nothing worse than carnal religion. It is, it, is, it is the worst. No joy, no power, critical spirit, judgmentalism, uh, factions fighting, all kinds of terrible things. Well, look at Galatians 5. This is what Paul's addressing. He, he's addressing carnal religion here. Galatians 5, starting verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, 13, 5, 13, For you, brethren, have not been called, excuse me, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? 
But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Well, that, this, is, this is a cheery observation. <laughs> Clearly, there's issues in Galatia. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, walk in the Spirit, and you won't bite and devour one another. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, but the Spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now he gives a list here of, of the works of the flesh in verse 19. And it's, it's, a, it's a dark picture of human nature. Very dark picture of human nature apart from the Holy Ghost. And the striking thing is that he's talking to Christians implying that professing Christians can live this way. There'd be no point in him saying this. He's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the church. If he says, don't bite and borrow one another, then he talks about the works of the flesh and about the selfish ambition and, and, and anger and wrath and dissension and heresy and envy and all these terrible things that tear Christians apart. Verse uh, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, after listening to, these, he, he, listening to the works of the flesh, he says, he says, oh yeah, and if people do this, they're not saved. And they might be in the church, but they're not saved. Because he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In other words, you don't need the law to, you don't need the law for this, you need the Spirit for this. You need the Holy Spirit. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The, the Holy Spirit is essential to personal holiness and growth. It is essential to communal, true community. Essential. It's also essential to the mission, the corporate mission of the body of Christ. Go to Acts, well, no, go to Matthew. Eh, where do I want to go first? Um, just go to Acts 1.8, I guess. In Acts 1, we have one of, the, one of the versions of the Great Commission. We actually have four versions. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. John doesn't give, really give one of the yeah, kind. Well, that's a whole other stuff. Okay. So they all assembled together, verse 4, and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. What's the promise? For John truly baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then they start talking about when's the kingdom going to be restored? Jesus says, you're missing the point. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
clearly a link between the agency of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the church's missionary or evangelistic work. You need the Holy Spirit to be an effective witness. Matter of fact, you need the Holy Spirit to even want to witness, which is the, the more fundamental problem. Okay, that's the real problem, the lack of even wanting to. Okay? But when you're filled with the Spirit of God, you have the mind of Christ, you have the heart of Jesus, and you actually love people that are unlovable. You care about people that don't care about you. In fact, you care about people that don't even care about themselves. They don't even care about their souls. But you do. Because the Holy Spirit gives you that passion and that concern and that love. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In John, um, go to John 14. John 14, Jesus is uh, his last discourse, if you will. In the upper room, and he says, um, 15, 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Some versions you will keep. And I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Who is this helper? The Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now that's heavy. <laughs> you want to meditate on that for a couple years. I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandment and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home in him, or make a room or a mansion in him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So Jesus is leaving, and now he promises them the perpetual indwelling of the Holy Spirit to the church. This is the promise. Okay? Why is this important in terms of the church's mission? Because in chapter 16, he says this. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Well, no, go to, go to 15.26 first. 15.26, he says, But when the Helper comes, now Jesus is just, just right before this talking about how the world's going to hate them. And by the way, if you want people to like you, you've got you to crucify that. Seriously, you got to crucify it. Some people are going to hate you for being a Christian. 
Some people will be indifferent, which is a different form of hostility. He says at the end of 25, he quotes Psalms where he says, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Not, not to them, not, not to, he's saying he will testify not to the apostles, he will testify to the world. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying you are going to witness for me, but as you witness for me, the Spirit will be witnessing. Verse uh, 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus uh, in this text talks about the, the ministry of the Spirit to the believer, indwelling the believer, empowering the believer for obedience and fellowship with the Father and the Son, but then he talks about the role of the believer, excuse me, the Holy Spirit in the, in the mission of the church, the ministry of the church, to be witnesses. And he's saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit, and, and as you witness, he will testify. He will witness alongside of you. That's why in Acts 1, he says, he said to them before they actually went out, wait, because the Holy Spirit had not been given in his fullness yet to the church. Wait till you get the Holy Spirit. Because if you do it without the Holy Spirit, you're going to fail. So wait for the Spirit. And then the Spirit came to the church. And the Spirit was poured out on the church. And as they began to witness in the power of the Spirit, what happened? People got saved. Were they saving them? No. The Spirit of God was saving them. Because they were being born of God's Spirit. Salvation, conversion, is not simply an intellectual swapping of propositions. It is an inward transformation where the soul that is dead to God is quickened and made alive by God's Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual resurrection that takes place. It is a divine miracle that results from the divine power of God's Holy Spirit. And God has given that power to his church because the Spirit dwells in the hearts of the believer and the Spirit dwells in the community of the church. We have that power. We have that power. The success of God's work, whether it's in us for sanctification, or whether it's through us for mission or service, is dependent on the agency of the Holy Ghost. Salvation, sanctification, service, all of these are a product of God's Holy Spirit working in and through the believer. Human willpower is not sufficient to produce holiness or happiness 
love, sacrifice, or conversions. Are you hearing me? Human willpower is not enough. Many Christians in their personal life get stuck. They really do. They get stuck. They're, they're genuine believers and they're sincere and, and, they're, and they're, you know, you can say they love the Lord, but they actually get stuck at this place where they don't grow anymore. It's because they, they, they're trying to work it out on their own. You can't work it out on your own. Jesus even says, I'm not leaving you alone. You're not supposed to be alone because you're not alone if you're a believer. I've given you the Spirit and He dwells in you. He's the one that can change you. He's the one that can give you victory over sin. He's the one that can give you love for the unlovable. He's the one that can give you joy in trials. He's the one that can give you wisdom in baffling situations. He's the one that can use you to lead others to Christ. The Holy Spirit can do all that. Matter of fact, that's why God sent him to do all that. As I've said many times, the world doesn't need our Christianity. They need Jesus Christ. Therefore, they need the Spirit of Christ working through us, touching them. Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Paul was a religious man before he got saved. He was a Pharisee. He was, he was highly esteemed in his community because of his religiosity. Do you understand? And yet he, he, he died to all of that for Jesus Christ, to know Jesus. He died to all of his religion and religiosity and rituals and traditions. He died to all of that to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. His flesh produced religion. The Holy Spirit in him produced conversion. Only the Holy Spirit can save and sanctify. Amen? Amen? Only the Holy Spirit can renew and transform. Only the Holy Spirit can inspire dedication and service. Only the Spirit of God can sufficiently equip the body of Christ to fulfill the Great Commission. This is why Jesus said, when he said to go into all the world, Preaching the gospel to every creature. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, I am with you. Always. Well, do you see Jesus here? Well, when you're born of God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in you, the Spirit of Christ is now with you always. So we're not alone. It's not as if Jesus leaves and we do all the work now. It doesn't work that way. No, he physically leaves and he spiritually returns in the, 
in and through the person of the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside the believer. It is because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and works through us that we can fulfill the commission to be the light of the world and we can preach the gospel to every creature. Amen? In his power. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I pray for all of us to believe your word. To believe that through your spirit that dwells in us that we have the sufficient means, the sufficient gifts, the sufficient graces to be the light of the world to which you have called us. I pray for each one here that truly knows you, God, that you would remind them that they are not alone. When they go to work tomorrow, they're not alone. Your spirit is in them. Your spirit may want to, want to, want to uh, do a mighty thing through them tomorrow. And he is sufficiently able to do anything according to your will. And I pray, Lord, that we as your people would, as Paul said, walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And as we walk in the Spirit in all the areas of our life, Lord, that his fruits would be produced, his his effects, if you will, his ministries, his activities. And we thank you, Lord, that there is no mountain too big, no opposition too powerful that cannot be overcome. Because, Lord, your spirit is an omnipotent spirit So I pray, Lord, for any here that may be struggling with particular sins, we ask, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you might free them. And I pray that they would, like Paul, cry out in desperation, O wretched man that I am, that they would come to the end of their self-striving, their fleshly striving, and come to the end and cry out desperately for your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that as a community, we would understand that we need to cry out for your spirit if we're going to be the real church. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us. We need to walk in your spirit, be filled with your spirit, that we might be the light of the world that we're called to be. And so I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to the work of your spirit. Truly open our hearts, God, to the work of your Spirit in us individually as well as corporately. I pray that we would believe your word. Believe every word that I read today from your scripture about the Holy Spirit. That we would believe your word and walk in faith. Lord, we thank you that you saved us that you have quickened our souls from death to life. 
And may we be the means of leading others to you. And I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen.